All right, we are back. It turns out that my uh, my longtime friend is not going to be joining us in today's program, but hopefully he will be on next week. These things happen. So let's instead jump to a meme, which I think was posted by Dan Bacher. Uh, it might have been on Facebook. It shows a very large uh, hornet's nest of some sort with the caption, Antifa is using fake wasp nests to hide cameras, to which was added, knock them down. And yes, we got quite a chuckle over imagining a guy in a red MAGA hat and a, and a stick going out to knock down a, a fake wasp nest and all of the hijinks that might have followed. Pretty funny. Also funny, maybe not quite as funny, is a picture of Stormy Daniels waving and looking like her fetching self with the caption, I got more money out of Donald Trump than the federal government got in 10 years. Yes, Stormy Daniels. M- Melania was eight months pregnant with Young Baron when that went down. Nice. And we gather that uh, Young Baron himself has contracted COVID and just hard to understand why. It seems like the family's been so careful. Well, we hope the kid does okay. Speaking of Melania, the Department of Justice, the American Department of Justice has swung into action uh, regarding the tell-all book written by Stephanie Winston Wolkoff, former White House advisor and friend of the First Lady. Her tell-all book, Melania and Me, The Rise and Fall of My Friendship with the First Lady, has induced a 16-page lawsuit out of the DOJ, arguing that Winston Wolkoff signed a blanket non-disclosure agreement during her White House span, and, and government lawyers are insisting she was bound to a confidential agreement that goes far beyond her tenure. As a penalty for this alleged breach of contract, the Justice Department is seeking to offset all proceeds from the book to the federal government, which, you know, might, might be more than Trump paid in taxes. Anyway, this lawsuit has drawn some criticism from legal experts who believe it is a waste of the Justice Department's resources, as it appears to be more of a personal issue regarding the First Lady and her former confidant. Alter News quoted Brad Moss, a national security attorney, as saying this is a complete abuse of the Justice Department's finite resources to bring a personal lawsuit on behalf of the First Lady against a former advisor. The case law has been expressly clear for decades that former officials cannot be contractually censored for anything other than classified information and no amount of legal hair-splitting over Walkoff's status, quote-unquote, as a volunteer is going to change that. Meanwhile... The FBI, the, uh, the police arm of the Department of Justice, what do we say, investigative branch of the Department of Justice? I, I don't know. I don't know how you really define the FBI. It's always been kind of a law unto itself. But it did say this last week that it had foiled a militia plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Six men have been arrested. They face federal charges. And seven others are charged under Michigan's Anti-Terrorism Act. And since that time, a number of prominent Democrats have claimed the men arrested were inspired by President Trump's tweet to liberate Michigan. For keeping score, on April 17th, Trump tweeted, Liberate Michigan as part of a series of tweets which appeared to attack lockdown measures aimed at containing the coronavirus outbreak. Again, politics, coronavirus, the same thing in the United States. In the same month, protesters opposed to a lockdown entered the Michigan Senate Gallery and demanded access to the House chambers, at which point some were armed, and some looked pretty heavily armed, as I recall. On May 1st, Trump wrote, The governor of Michigan should should give a little and put out the fire. These are very good people, but they were angry. They want their lives back safely. See them, talk to them, make a deal. 
Now, the FBI in charging these several members who talked about murdering tyrants, taking a sitting governor, discussed overthrowing state governments. I believe they talked about uh, trying and executing the governor of Michigan in the process. Well, the sworn affidavit does not link the militia members to Trump or anything Trump said. Newsweek, investigating the claim, (laughs) said that the FBI has provided no evidence that the arrested men were inspired by Trump. However, more information about their political beliefs and motivations is likely to come to light, particularly when the matter goes to trial. At this stage, it's not possible to say with certainty whether or not the men felt emboldened by the president. To which I would add, I guess this is why nobody reads Newsweek anymore. You know, I think on last week's program, we skipped the good, the bad, and the ugly, but we always enjoyed doing that. So let's, let's do that now. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for The Will of the People. After Ion Aleman was overwhelmingly elected to a third term as the mayor of the Romanian village of Deveselu, despite having died of COVID-19 10 days earlier. Said his deputy, Nicolae Dobre, Aleman may be dead, but none of the other contenders got the same trust from the voters. Well, guess not. Which does remind me of that great line from Will Durst who is still recovering from the stroke he suffered last year. We wish him well. Hope he'll be back on the program sometime. In the wake of James Brown's passing some years back, at which point there were reports the the body was being fought over by various family members and the body was being transported here and transported there. Prompted Will to come forward and say, did did you hear about that, that, that James Brown body being moved here and there? You know, the guy's been dead a month and he's still the hardest working man in show business. And it was, on the other hand, a really, really bad week for feedback a couple weeks back with the news that U.S. citizen Wesley Barnes faces years in a Thai jail for posting negative TripAdvisor reviews about a resort in Thailand. Under the country's strict anti-defamation laws, Barnes' comments about the resort's unfriendly staff could result in two years behind bars. And it was an ugly week a few weeks back for... You know, is it making stuff up or is it Fox News? The story is that a federal judge threw out a defamation suit against Fox News host Tucker Carlson, agreeing with the network's lawyers that, quote, no reasonable viewer, unquote, could take what Carlson says seriously. And we'd have to say that we think it's probably an ugly week this last week for America's litigious society with the news that after a Florida man bit down on a chicken bone on one of his supposedly boneless McNuggets, he's suing McDonald's for $1.1 million. Alexei Stolfot claims he suffered, quote, unbearable jaw pain, unquote, and required expensive dental work and is demanding a recall of all McNuggets. We have to ask, how hard did he bite down on that McNugget? And we have two Only in America stories also related to that state of Florida. The first is that with universities down there in the Sunshine State cracking down on parties to fight the coronavirus, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has proposed a, quote, Bill of Rights, unquote, for college students. Governor DeSantis says that the surge of cases on some campuses and nearly 700,000 COVID-19 cases and 14,000, this is weeks ago, 
it's over 15 now, do not justify restrictions on social gatherings. He said, it's dramatically draconian that a student could get potentially expelled for going to a party. That's what college kids do. And as I think we may have reported on this program, uh, the Trump administration overruled its own Center for Disease Control by letting cruise ships resume sailing on, on October 31st. That was in line with a voluntary plan the industry submitted earlier in the year. But in the meantime, CDC Director Robert Redfield had argued, well, this is at a meeting of a federal coronavirus task force, that the no-sale restriction, which expired on September 30th, should be extended until mid-February. The White House Fritz part denied that the faster timetable was driven by desire to cater to the politically powerful and wealthy cruise ship industry ahead of the election. Oh, did we add the cruise ship industry centered in Florida? All right, since we're talking about election, and oddly enough, Florida, let's, let's, talk, about, let's talk about the theft of an American election. This is a theft that involved dirty Republican operatives. It involved people in the tech industry, such as it was in 1876, which pretty meant, you know, Western Union. And we'll talk about, you know, how politics is the art of the possible. Let's take a five-minute delve into Tim Wu's The Master Switch, which is a a book, I I believe, dear listener, which everybody should read. And there are a lot of summaries of what happened in 1876, but Tim Wu, I think, has one of the better ones here. He notes that late on the night of the 1876 presidential election, a man named John Reed was racing from the New York Times offices to Republican campaign headquarters on Fifth Avenue. In his hand, he held a Western Union telegram with the potential to decide who would be the next president of the United States. While Alexander Graham Bell was trying to work the bugs out of of his telephone system, Western Union, telephone's first and most dangerous rival, had reckoned they had much bigger fish to fry, making their man president of the United States. Here, says Tim Wu, we introduced the nation's first great communications monopolist, whose reign provides history's first lesson in the power and peril of concentrated control over the flow of information. Western Union's man was one Rutherford B. Hayes, an obscure Ohio politician described by a contemporary journalist as a third-rate non-entity. And there's a story behind that. How Hayes managed to get the Republican nomination, I think, on the seventh try, had a lot to do with how the favorite, James G. Blaine, was considered so corrupt that even the Republicans couldn't stomach him. At any rate, Western Union and its partner Newswire, the Associated Press, wanted Hayes in office. They had several reasons for that. Hayes was a close friend of William Henry Smith, a former politician who was now the key political operator at the Associated Press. More generally, since the Civil War, the Republican Party and the telegraph industry had enjoyed a special relationship, in part because some of what were eventually Western Union lines were originally built by the Union Army. So making Hayes president was the goal. But how was the telegram in Reed's hand a key to achieving it? Notes Wu. The media and communication industries are regularly accused of trying to influence politics. But what went on in the late 1870s was of a wholly different order from anything we could imagine today. At the time, Western Union was the exclusive owner of the only nationwide telegraph network, and the sizable Associated Press was the unique source for instant national or European news. The AP took advantage of its economies of scale to produce millions of lines of copy a year, and apart from local news, its product was the mainstay of many American newspapers. With the common law notion of 
common carriage deemed inapplicable and the latter-day concept of net neutrality not yet imagined, Western Union carried AP reports exclusively. Working closely with the Republican Party and allowed the Republican papers like the New York Times, he notes the minting of the Times' liberal bona fides took a lot longer, they did what they could to throw the election to Hayes. And it was easy. The AP ran story after story about what an honest man Hayes was and what a good governor he had been and just whatever he happened to be doing that day. It omitted any scandals related to Hayes and it declined to run positive stories about his rival. That would be James Blaine in the primary and Samuel Tilden in the general election. But beyond routine favoritism, late that election day, Western Union offered the Hayes campaign a secret weapon that would come to light only much later. As the polls closed that day, it appeared that the performance of Western Union had been a waste of time. Samuel Tilden, the Democrat, held a clear advantage in the popular vote, a margin of over 250,000. My understanding is that in 1876, there was an 82% voter turnout in America, a number that has never been equaled since. And he seemed headed for victory according to most early returns. By some accounts, Hayes privately conceded defeat. But late that night, John Reed, the New York Times editor, alerted the Republican Party that the Democrats, despite extensive intimidation of Republican supporters, remained unsure of their victory in the South. So the GOP sent some telegrams of its own to the Republican governors in the South with special instructions for manipulating state electoral commissions. As a result, the Hayes campaign abruptly claimed victory, resulting in an electoral dispute that would make Bush v. Gore seem like a garden party. Now, there's a lot more to this story. There were three states in the South, Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana, that had Republican governors put in charge, and federal troops still basically running the show down there. The other states in the Confederacy had, you know, basically been allowed to return to the Union one by one, but these three were thought to be the most recalcitrant, and as it would turn out for the Republicans, the most manipulable. Those Republicans put in charge of those states were told, asked if they could hold their state. And they did. Keep in mind that at this point in time, Samuel Tilden had 184 electoral votes. One less than what he needed to become president. If you could find a way to throw all three of those southern states to Rutherford Hayes, he would then have 185 and to make a very, very long story very short, the two parties fought tooth and nail over this. They set up an electoral commission, which eventually voted eight to seven along party lines to award every single one of those disputed electoral votes to Hayes. But the thing that emboldened the Republicans to simply declare victory and then set up these machinations to you know gum up the works and properly counting the votes has to do with the fact that Western Union was able to read the telegrams of their opponents and say, well, they're not positive they absolutely have this, so let's seize the initiative. Said Tim Wu, while mostly studied by historians and political scientists, the dispute of 1876 should also be taken as a crucial parable for communications policymakers. More than anything, it showed what kind of political advantage a discriminatory network can confer. When the major channels for moving information are loyal to one party, its effects, while often invisible, can be profound. It also showed how a single communications monopolist can use its power not just for discrimination, but for outright betrayal of trust, revealing for the first time why what we now call electronic privacy might matter. 
Rutherford Hayes might never have been president, but for the fact that Western Union provided secret access to the telegrams sent by his rivals. Western Union's role was a blatant instance of malfeasance, despite its explicit promises that, quote, all messages whatsoever, unquote, would be kept, quote, strictly private and confidential, unquote. The company regularly betrayed the public trust by turning over private and strategically actionable communications to the Hayes campaign. Now, we've been talking about this kind of crap on this program for years. Uh, I'm glad a lot of friends have just discovered the social dilemma, which also is talking about how divided America has become because of the business model of the tech companies. We've also talked at great length of how important Facebook has been to the election and re-election of Donald Trump. Brad Parscale, Trump's tech guy, claims that he basically got Trump elected through Facebook without even having to use Cambridge Analytica, without even you know, needing the support of Vladimir Putin. Now, that may or may not be true, but we do recommend, dear listener, that if you've got some time on your hands, and God, who doesn't in this COVID era, check out the 60 Minutes episode they did with Brad Parscale a few years back. He explains very clearly how Facebook offered its people to both campaigns in 2016. The Clinton campaign turned them down, thought they were very media savvy. Brad Parscale, working for Trump, said, send me everything you've got. I want to know every trick in the book. I imagine we'll have more to say about this between now and Election Day. I do want to note, I, I don't have my hands on it right now. I've got a file about, you know, half-inch thick of, of, of people's objections to what's going on uh, with Facebook and Google and what's going on in Silicon Valley. The natives are restless there. A lot of people are pretty upset about how, uh, uh, how propaganda is not being monitored and, and eliminated from these platforms. So this can't be good news to anyone who thinks that's a good thing. We think it's a good thing. But... Um, a tech CEO has now decided to clamp down on employee activism. Brian Armstrong of Coinbase, the country's biggest cryptocurrency exchange, said last week, while well, he outlined rules for the company's, quote, apolitical, unquote, stance, including that employees should refrain from advocating for causes or candidates internally that are unrelated to our mission. Armstrong later doubled down by offering severance packages to employees who don't want to comply. He pointed to internal strife at Google and Facebook, which has knotted itself into a pretzel trying to offend free speech on its platforms while recently creating new policies to curb divisive posts on internal messaging boards. Google was sued for firing an employee who allegedly discriminated against conservative white men. Coinbase's request prompted a swift outcry from tech executives such as former Twitter CEO Dick Costolo, who likened it to telling your employees to shut up. Writing in TheVerge.com, Casey Newton said, More companies will head in this direction. As much as people went ballistic about it on Twitter, Armstrong's view seems to resonate with some prominent members of the managerial class, such as influential Y Combinator founder Paul Graham, who argued that a less political company is the kind that most people want to work at. Watch that space. Now, a lot of people are encouraged by the fact that polling across the country is showing Joe Biden with a pretty whopping lead at this point. Some are saying 53 to 39, 14 points. Of course, that's not how we elect presidents. We don't elect presidents on a popular vote. What you have to do if you want to elect a president is swing a few, maybe tens of thousands of votes in a few key states. Some think they did that in 2016. I thought they must have right after the election, but everyone kept saying, oh, there's just no way they can do that, that they're not on the internet, blah, blah, blah. Well, then I saw Kill Chain, another documentary we would highly recommend that explains 
Well, it, it reiterates what we already knew, that it's very easy to hack into uh, to voting machines. That we knew and that we talked about. We didn't realize that they really are very easy to get you know, connected to the Internet. And once they're connected to the Internet, they're very easy to talk to their fellow machines. Was the 2016 election stolen? Well, we don't know, but got our suspicions. And the possibility of it happening again is disturbing. And, you know, there's a lot of other disturbing things that we haven't, we haven't talked about of late that, well, why don't we lump a few of them together and, and just throw them out at you right now? I don't know. This is such a small story, such a goofy story, and yet it is such a scary story. According to Trump's former deputy campaign manager, Rick Gates, who's got a new memoir out, Ivanka Trump had to talk her father out of making her his running mate in 2016. Says Rick Gates, as the Trump campaign brainstormed potential vice presidential candidates in June of 2016, Trump floated Ivanka, a fashion and real estate executive then 34 with no political experience. She's bright, she's smart, she's beautiful, and the people would love her, said Trump, according to Gates. Trump kept pushing the idea, and the campaign actually conducted two polls to gauge voter support for Ivanka. Finally, Ivanka told her father it was a bad idea, and Trump warmed to Mike Pence after Pence delivered a vicious and extended monologue about Bill and Hillary Clinton. Anyway, did we do this in last week's show, Ms. McMillan? I've heard it before. I'm not sure if we aired it. Well, you know what? If we did, fine. It was worth airing again because it's so incredible. Trump wanted to make his daughter the vice presidential candidate, and his daughter had to talk him out of it. Now, that's according to Rick Gates. He could be lying. He pled guilty to lying to investigators in the Russian probe and got sentenced to 45 days in prison. But the odd thing is, he still supports Donald Trump. And in a parallel, though not maybe quite as creepy story, we have this. El Salvador has a new ambassador to Washington. She's a former beauty queen. She apparently met President Trump during his time running the Miss Universe pageant. Milena Mayorga, 44, got elected to the legislature down there in El Salvador in 2018, but has no diplomatic experience. A photo circulated on social media shows Trump with his arms around her and two other contestants at the 1996 pageant. Her appointment is seen as an attempt by Salvadorian President Nayib Bukele to curry favor with Trump. He has already backed Trump's hardline immigration policies. Bukele is less popular with members of Congress who have criticized his increasing authoritarianism. Well, as one authoritarian to another, I think he's got a pretty good idea of what might attract the president's uh, attention. And how about this? Apparently, Donald Trump, at the first presidential debate, claimed that a series of executive orders have forced pharmaceutical companies to slash prices, including on the cost of insulin. Writing about this in the LA Times, David Lazarus says, Take it from me, insulin is not as cheap as water. Adding that as someone with type 1 diabetes who relies on daily insulin doses to stay alive, I found Trump's remarks particularly offensive. Insulin prices have actually tripled in recent years to as much as $300 per vial, which in many cases is less than a month's supply. What Trump was apparently referring to is an announcement in May that some, but not all, Medicare plans would cap monthly insulin co-payments by seniors at $35. So Lazarus, that's still more than $400 a year and only goes into effect next year. And in a story that has a little bit of a disturbing element to it that is also an obituary, we want to note, uh, note the passing of Helen Reddy, who gave the 1970s women's liberation movement its anthem. The number one single in 1971, I Am Woman, married a buoyant, 
pop melody with a message of female empowerment. Reddy was Australian, born in Melbourne, into a show business family. She went on to notch two other number one hits, Delta Dawn in 1973 and Angie Baby in 1974. She hosted a variety show on NBC. She acted in movies. And after a while, she decided to retire from show business. She did that in 2002. But here's the part I find disturbing. She became a clinical hypnotherapist and published a memoir in which she discussed her interest in reincarnation and past lives, writing, Elvis Presley had once been King Tutankhamen. And we have two baseball obituaries I'd like to insert in today's program, the first being that of Bob Gibson. I remember seeing Bob Gibson on TV pitching, and he looked fearsome. What amazes me is to find out at this list late in the game that he was only 6'1 and 190. He looked like a giant. And if you were a Giants fan, you had to lament the fact that back when the Giants ace, Juan Marichal, amassed an earned run average of 1.27. And for those who have no way of gauging whether that's good or bad, let's just say it's really good. It turned out that that same year, Bob Gibson had an ERA of 1.12. That was the lowest in baseball since 1914. So dominant had pitching become by 1967 that Major League Baseball decided to shrink the strike zone and lower the mound to make it easier for hitters. He was a hell of a pitcher in the World Series. He threw six complete game victories in championship teams in 1964 and 1967. He made nine all-star teams, but I had to laugh where it was noted in his obituaries that he loathed chatting with his fellow National League standouts, saying, I spent the rest of the season trying to kick their ass. They were the enemy. And yes, he was noted for his intensity as a competitor. He never apologized for that, once saying, I played a couple of hundred games of tic-tac-toe with my little daughter, and she hasn't beaten me yet. I also want to note the passing of one of Bob Gibson's teammates, Kurt Flood. He was a great ball player, Kurt Flood, but he's most famous for the fact that he took on Major League Baseball in 1969 and ended with a Supreme Court defeat, but it led to the modern free agency system in professional sports. For his troubles, Flood got essentially blackballed from the sport when he refused to go to Philadelphia after being traded by St. Louis. Kurt Flood viewed baseball's reserve clause, which bound a player to a team for as long as the team wished, as just a version of indentured servitude. He said, In the history of man, there's no other profession except slavery, where one man is tied to one owner for the rest of his life. Me, as a black man, I'm probably a lot more sensitive to the rights of other people because I've been denied these rights. He was a brave man, Kurt Flood. He told the Major League Baseball Players Association director Marvin Miller he didn't care if suing baseball would end his career as long as it was ultimately benefit other players and those to come. And it did. And unfortunately, it also did end his career. I'm not sure we can do two obituaries in the two minutes we have left. I'm sure we can't, but I do want to mention the passing of a man whose grandfather was president. Now you're thinking if his grandfather was president, we must be talking about, let's just say, I don't know, a Roosevelt. Well, that would be pretty reasonable, but in fact, we're talking about the passing of Lion Gardner Tyler, who died 175 years after his grandfather, John Tyler, the 10th president, left the White House. (laughs) 
And yeah, the math on this is pretty amazing. The key to all of this is that these old guys procreated late. By the way, his younger brother, Harrison Ruffin Tyler, at 91, now remains the last surviving grandson of the 10th president. And lastly, there's Eddie Van Halen, a tremendously respected and talented guitarist. Eddie Van Halen, well, let's just say he left his mark on rock and roll. Now, it's pretty well known that Van Halen is a Dutch name, and with Eddie and Alex in the band, it was kind of natural just to name the band Van Halen. Turns out Eddie was a sort of a product of colonialism, I guess you might say. The Dutch left their mark in Indonesia, dating back, I believe, to the Dutch East India Company, which was very successful back in its time. I have a Dutch-Indonesian story, which unfortunately we don't have time for today. But suffice it to say that Eddie's mother was Indonesian. His father was Dutch. Something which I dare say very few people were aware of until Eddie passed this past week. Anyway, we got to wrap it up, but I think I'll leave it to Mr. Merlin to just make a selection from uh, Eddie Van Halen's repertoire in, in closing. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I am your faithful host, Douglas Everett, and this show, like all of them, was produced by Edward McMillan. We will see you next week, and we're going get, to uh, get some licks in talking about politics and pandemics. In America, they're the same thing. We'll see you then. <laughs>